These are the people that Titus was around. Liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. It was a rough neighborhood and a rough upbringing. But yet Titus, Titus also finds a home with the Apostle Paul. He's also taken on by Paul as a spiritual son. And Paul also kind of raises him up in the faith. Right? So now you've got these two guys, one maybe struggling with insecurity, finding his place in the world. The other guy has not come from a great upbringing, and he's trying to get out of it. Paul has two churches that he really needs to establish with firm, solid leaders. He has one in Ephesus, which we're told Ephesus, scholars kind of debate just how many people were there. But this city had anywhere from half a million to one and a half million people. Ephesus was huge. Suffice to say, that means whoever's going to be leading the church there, like, this could be like the flagship church that everybody pays attention to. You know, the one that they're saying, oh, what's the church at Ephesus doing? Because there's, there's something good going there. The other place is Titus's home, hometown of Crete. Right? This would have been a, a much smaller, much less worldly influential place. Definitely not a glamorous assignment. Remember, liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. So, Paul's got two churches, very different in context. Paul has two leaders, very different guys, but ones who are both strong in the faith. Who would you think Paul's going to put at these two places, right? Worldly convention would tell us, put the stronger guy, the guy who's gone through a lot, Put him at the influential post because you need the strong leader at the, the high risk but high reward place, right? Send Titus to Ephesus. Send Timothy to Crete. Let him, let him kind of figure out his way amongst the rough crowd. And Paul does the opposite. In fact, he takes this guy who's very insecure and has been shunned by the world, would have been looked down on by everybody in that city, and he says, Timothy, you're going to go lead potentially one of the more influential churches and the early world. And then he turns to Titus and says, Titus, you grew up in a terrible place, and I'm going to send you right back into it to go lead a church there. Very interesting to see why is Paul doing this? What is leading Paul to say in this? And when we get to this, what is Paul trying to teach us about elders? It's in this context that we actually get most of most people when they teach about what an elder is, what a deacon is, they're referencing either 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, or Titus. But there's a lot of just unconventional wisdom and a really random background that's behind when these letters are written. And so, church, remember last week we did this exercise where when we saw Paul say something in Ephesians, we said, okay, does Paul say this in other letters? You know, so is Paul talking to just the church at Ephesus, or is he trying to say something all of us can do? So church, I've already kind of done some of the guesswork for us, but we're going to look at between 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, different letters written to very different churches, written to two very different leaders, to say what is Paul after when he's saying, hey, I want you guys to shepherd the church well, and I want you to raise up shepherds in your church well, what Paul describes as elders. So this is the big picture that we're going to get across all three of these books. We're going to see elders are to shepherd themselves and others in God's heart and God's word through a life of humble discipleship. So when we think for New River Fellowship, what would an elder look like? 
someone who shepherds themselves and others in God's heart and God's word through a life of humble discipleship. Okay, Open with me, if you have your word, to 1 Timothy. And no, we're going to be jumping around a little bit. But 1 Timothy, looking in verses 3 through 7 of chapter 1. Right up at the front, when Paul is talking to Timothy, why am I writing to you? What am I trying to get you to do? He says this. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, the aim of our charge is love, love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, but without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So right there, Paul says, Timothy, if you're going to lead the church well, if you're going to, and church, we could put ourselves into this to say, if we're going to lead ourselves well, if we're going to live out a life of faith well, we have to know what's true and what's false. What Paul says in verse 3 and verse 4. But I love that he says this, but he says, but remember your goal, right? We're not just trying to sit down and say, this is true, this is false, this is true, this is false. Typically when we do that, we have a very uh, vindictive heart and mind, right? I got to declare everything to be true and everything to be false. But he says in verse 5, the aim of our charge is a love. A love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So we're not just shepherding each other in God's word. We're also shepherding in God's heart. And if you continue on later in chapter 1, Paul tells Timothy, look, if you're going to do this in your personal life, you will find yourself doing this in the church among the people of God as well. And this pattern of shepherding yourself and shepherding others in God's heart and God's word is something Paul just keeps coming back to over and over and over again. If you look in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, verses 6 through 12, Paul writes, If you put these things before the brothers, the brothers, their church being a Greek word that's is all-encompassing, brothers, brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent or silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Shepherd yourself in God's heart, God's word. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. There's a couple times Paul just says, hey, what I just said, pay attention to that. Because it's almost as, you know, when, when, when a preacher is preaching and you really agree and you, you just yell amen, Paul is amening himself. He's saying, ooh, that, that was good. So we'll read it again. Paul says, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying, amen, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Paul continues, verse 10, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, 
in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. So there it is again. Paul says, look, Timothy, don't let people look down on you because of your background. Don't let people look down on you just because of of the, the family that you've grown up in, the fact that you struggle with your place in the world. Don't let them look down on you. What do you do? Shepherd yourself and others in God's heart and God's word. Set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. And Paul continues in verse 15. He says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. He says, Timothy, you do this for yourself as you're leading other people to do likewise. Paul writes the same thing in the book of 2 Timothy. Verses 5 through 14 of chapter 1, Paul says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. Through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. And this is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me. In the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. For by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Again, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me. God's word. But then again, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So it's not just do everything the word says, but also make sure that you are actually living out God's heart and leading others to live out God's heart. And Paul continues to look at one place in Titus. He says the exact same thing to Titus. The beginning of Titus starts with Paul telling him, hey, these are some things that are being taught that are incorrect, right? The whole remember what is true and what is false. But he, he writes to Titus in chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He's reminding Titus of the gospel, of, of the word of God, of the heart of God. And in verse 15, he says, declare these things. He says, lead yourself in it and go tell others. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Church, we're seeing this picture that it, it didn't matter what the circumstances were. Okay, 
It didn't matter whether it was like one of the most important churches in the world or one of the most roughest neighborhoods to have a church. It didn't matter whether you were insecure because of your background or you believed there was something in your personal testimony that would keep you from being accepted by the world or whether you had a rough upbringing and you weren't sure if that was going to allow you to lead. It does not matter. Paul gives the same charge to these guys who are trying to lead the church, what we would think of spiritual leadership as elders, And then he says, by the way, teach other people to do this. Lead elders in doing this. He says, shepherd yourself and others in God's heart and God's word. So church, what this would look like for us, as far as what do we look for in elders at New River Fellowship? What does spiritual leadership look like for us? Practically, it's it's this, this right here. Shepherding ourselves and others in God's heart and God's word. It means that, that doing, kind of like we talked about last week, doing is not everything. You don't just look for the most active people and say, well, you're doing a ton, so why don't you just go hop out and, and be a leader somewhere? One of my favorite, favorite sayings of Jesus is when he looks at the Pharisees, these people that were doing everything right to the eyes of everyone around them, and he calls them brood of vipers. One of my favorites, he calls them a whitewashed tomb, right? You look great on the outside, but you are missing it completely on the inside. You are literally a beautiful chamber of death. Church, may that, I don't want that to ever be said about me or of our leadership here. And I don't think it, it is. But when we're looking at church leadership and we're thinking about spiritual leadership, we're saying we want people who are shepherding themselves, shepherding others, not just in doing the right thing, but in having the heart of God and leading others to do likewise. So it also means that when we think about spiritual leadership in the church, we're saying that our growth, another way we would put that, our success What are the things that we get excited about? What are the things we champion? What are the things we measure? It's not in terms of things like program or attendance or stability. Though certainly we do pray for those things. And it's not wrong for us to pray for those things. But we truthfully want to see heart change taking place. I mean, I will will never forget. It was, uh, this was probably about eight months ago now. And we were talking, it was in the leadership team meeting, we were talking about the vision again, and, and I think it was Joel. Somebody made the comment and said, Jordan, I just, I like the vision, and it's getting me to realize, you know, if, if we didn't grow or we had the same number of people, you know, two years down the road, I, I, I would just hope that you wouldn't count that as a failure for something, Right? He's like, because I I feel like we're starting to get it and we're starting to see it and we're starting to see other people get it and see it too. So don't don't worry about anything else as long as as you're seeing that heart take place. And I thought, I mean, I heard that in the meeting, but I've heard that from, from multiples of you guys just in different settings. Just what we are counting as a success and what we are after is actually seeing hearts change. And the the engineer in me says that's very difficult to quantify. And so you're kind of constantly living in tension of, well, I I can measure what other people are doing and it looks like they're accomplishing more. But actually seeing hearts change, 
I'm, I mean, Paul says, Titus, Timothy, man, that's what you want. And if you're going to raise up other people to shepherd and to lead spiritually with you, they have to want that too. But I also love, and again, you know, I, I share with you the background context of these letters. Because sometimes if, if you've heard sermons on these books, you think, well, these books must be included in God's word as an instruction manual of what church leadership is to look like. And that's not what Paul is essentially writing. Paul is not writing a manual on church leadership. That, that's, the specific verses about elders and deacons is like 12, 12 to 15 verses of three full books. Paul is writing his last thoughts to these two guys who are going to lead, but they're also just leading lives of faith. It's not just for spiritual leadership in the church, but, but this is for our personal lives too, guys. That while we may want to see this in our spiritual leaders, right? You would definitely want to see that in your pastor. You'd want to see that in anybody that's in leadership here. We should want this for ourselves, right? So I was thinking about this this week, that you and I, our lives actually look a lot different if we're starting to teach ourselves and to be in groups with other people teaching us, right? Reminding us of what God's heart is and what God's word is. And it just starts to kind of change the way we respond. So a very simple picture of this. Uh, this week, I, I had a, a really rough Tuesday. Not in comparison to other Tuesdays, but I have, I have really bad allergies. And I, I decided when I was in college that I was done with allergy shots. So whatever immunity I've built up, that, that's what I've got. My allergies are terrible. And it gets to me to the point where there's just some days breathing is, is very difficult. And for those of you who breathing comes more naturally to you, because we all tend to do that on a daily basis, when you can't do something as fundamental as breathing, it makes everything else a lot more irritating. So Tuesday, while I was at Blacksburg Transit, I went to go give some drivers breaks. Because if you drive for more than 10 hours at a time, somebody has to go relieve you. So I was, I was going, relieving some brakes. I get in the work SUV. I drive back to the shop. I'm, I'm feeling horrible. I'm trying to go home because that's where all the, you know, the meds and stuff that I have and the oils and things to help. It's all at the house. I'm trying to leave. I sit in the car. I have no clue where my car keys are. And so for the next two hours, Normally, that might not be a big deal, but when your head is completely stuffed and you can't breathe, like even simple things become very frustrating. And I called Abigail, and she, she got the brunt of my frustration. Now, even it wasn't directed at her, but it was just, I, I'll, I'll tell you, you know what, here, I wrote down on my notes here. This is exactly what was running through my head on Tuesday. God, are you serious? I need to get home. I don't know where my keys are. Why did you let me lose my keys? You know that I can't drive my car without keys. You know that I can't think through all the places my keys could be. God, aren't you supposed to be the great physician? How, why am I suffering with allergies? Are you really not able to handle allergies? Why can't you make me healthy? And, and God, by the way, if you're not here right now, how am I going to find my keys? Like just all these thoughts coming in all at the same time, right? Most of you guys have probably been in, in situations like this. And I realized much later that, man, if I had just taken a second to remind myself of what I know, 
right? I don't know a ton. But what I know about God's heart and God's word, I would not have continued in that frustration for the next couple of hours, continuing to when I got home. And, and you know, whenever your, your three-year-old is telling you to calm down, then it's just, it doesn't look good on your self-control, right? If I had taught myself, okay, Okay, I'm yelling all these things angrily at God, but what do I know about God's heart, right? His heart would have reminded me, of course he cares for me. Of course I'm valuable to him. Of course he sees me in my frustration. And I know that my God, our God, is a God of reconciliation. He is constantly working to put things back together. And if I had known his word, I would have said, well, you know what? I know that he didn't make me to be sick. I know that he didn't make me to be forgetful, but I live in a broken world. I, I, live, I live dealing with the effects of sin, right? So brokenness is going to exist. And God is also not just at work reconciling me, but all of creation. And when I thought about, okay, what are the things I, I had to do because I was stuck at work without the keys to the car. I did have the keys to the work SUV, so I was able to go out and get lunch for a couple coworkers who they had come in and they were greeted at the door with a stack of emergencies and they were gonna be able to eat from like 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. So I was able to go run and get them Bojangles because I couldn't leave. And I'm not really allowed to bring the work SUV home. I asked about that. Uh, but then also in that time frame, because I couldn't go anywhere, one of the other trainers decided he would drive me back to Squires and help me look for the keys. And he told me, hey, there's this, this you know, thing that you go to the lost and found in Squires and there's, you know, there's people that actually will help track things that are lost. So I can tell you that I, I did eventually get my car keys back later, praise God. But because I was so frustrated at just not being able to do what I thought I should have been able to do, I almost completely missed all these different little opportunities to get to serve somebody else or to get to receive someone else serving me, right? If I had reminded myself of God's heart and God's word, I would have not been frustrated the entire time, right? So, so while Paul is telling Titus and Timothy, hey, when you're leading the church, you need to shepherd yourself and shepherd others in God's heart and God's word. He's also saying, Timothy and Titus, as followers of Jesus, this is something fundamental that you have to be able to do. So don't, don't hear this and say, well, if I'm not going to be in a church leader, then I don't, I don't need this. No, Paul is writing to two men growing in the faith. They also happen to be in church leadership. So there's some application in there for both. Guys, God calls us to shepherd ourselves and others in God's heart and word. And the practical picture, the second half of our main point, we do this through humble discipleship. We're going to go back in, in kind of the different places that I read. I want to read like the next thing that's said after that. So right after Paul says, this is the heart that you need to have, listen to what Paul practically tells them to do. So in 1 Timothy chapter 2, right after he's established Timothy, Shepherd yourself in God's heart and God's word in chapter 1. He says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And again, Paul gives himself a little amen. He said, this is good. 
And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So right after he says, have this heart, he says a couple practical things. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, make them for all people. Right? Those are, your translations may have different English words. In the Greek, they're all essentially synonyms of the same thing, praying for one another. And he says, do this for everyone, all people. He says, Timothy, lead yourself in a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. When I read that this week, church, I went, that's not, not often what we talk about. We talk about wanting to leave our mark, wanting to make our legacy, like build our name. Paul says, live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified. Why do you want me to do that, Paul? He says in verse 4, do this. It's pleasing in the sight of God because he desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the way that we live and turning around and sharing this heart with others produces all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It leads us and others to God. Discipleship. Right, then Paul goes on, he calls them to have elders and deacons in chapter 3. He says, establish these leaders that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Verse 15, Paul says, look, I'm not going to be around to do everything. You've got to train other people to do it. Almost like a pastor saying, I can't be everywhere at once. For all people, all times. You've got to train up other people to do this well. A picture of discipleship. In 1 Timothy 5, when Timothy, right after, he, Paul tells him to set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Paul calls him to practically honor and at the same time discipline the elderly, the widow, and even other leaders in the church. Right, A picture of of discipleship. He says, go live life with them. Go honor them. Go discipline them. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, right? So after he, in the first kind of verses 5 through 14, gives this heart, he says, here's what you do, Timothy. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust it to faithful men, again, that Greek, men and women, who will be able to teach others also, take what you've heard, share it with others. Discipleship. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. Right after he says all of this about the heart we are to have. He says, remind them of these things and charge them before God. Not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Apologize, that's chapter 2. Chapter 3, verse 14 through 17. Paul says, but as for you, a similar thing. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God the Greek there being the messenger of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Again, a picture of discipleship. Continue what you've learned. Continue learning. Continue sharing with others.
And we see the exact same charge to Titus. Exact same charge. And even down to, he says, train the elderly, train the widow, train the leaders in your church. The same groups of people. He talks to Timothy. He says the same thing in Titus. And he ends in Titus 3, 1 through 8. He says, remind them, remind the believers to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Oof, that is a, that's a life right there. Hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness, verse 4, and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul again gives himself the amen. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Lead this heart so that people continue to grow in Christ, discipleship. Now I know for a church to want its leaders to live out humble discipleship doesn't necessarily sound groundbreaking, okay? And it's something that I've seen us do very well over the past year. Again, just to paraphrase from last week, I want that to be ingrained in our DNA. I want that to be something as your pastor that, that we, we see moving forwards, right? Because what we value in our leaders says a lot about what we really want at the end of the day kind of building off of Ephesians 4 last week when Paul's talking about, man, all the different things that you could go after in church leadership. Just some of the common ones that we, we hear. When we, when we hear people saying, well, we, we want someone to stand up for us. Typically, that means we, we want a, a strong-willed, a driven, a hard-charging leader, which underlies a heart that's really after power. If we say we, we want someone to kind of accomplish or lead us to do good things, then we look for the experienced, the proven track record type of leader. But it kind of underlies a heart that's really after production. If we say we want someone to make us look good, we, we tend to find that bold, kind of charismatic, motivational, emotional person because, hey, man, if people like that guy, they're going to like me because I, I'm represented by that guy. At the end of the day, that, that's really self. Man, that whole power production self narrative that we saw in Exodus, I, it's going to sound like I keep bringing it back up, but church, I mean, it's, it's there. Like God is continually showing this. If we want leaders to shepherd us to live out God's heart so that others learn to bear his image, we need leaders who are going to shepherd themselves in God's heart and word and who are committed to this discipleship, right? This is what Paul, when he's sitting towards the end of his life, 
He's looking back over all the things he's done, all the things he's learned, both from the Jewish background and from Christ. He's putting all the pieces together. He says, this is it, Timothy. This is it, Titus. That regardless of your background, regardless of the context that you are placed in, this is what you are to do. If you are in a position of spiritual leadership, but if you are under the name of Jesus Christ, this is what we need. We need to be shepherding ourselves and others in God's heart and in God's word through discipleship. Church, I have seen that in our family this past year, okay? And just like I said last week, I don't want that to be something that happens as an accident or as a byproduct of whatever we're choosing to do, where if we chose to do something different, it would disappear. Okay, th this is fundamental to what our leadership looks like. But what this also means for our personal lives, I, I just have two encouragements I want to leave with you this morning. If we're after this heart in leadership, then hopefully that will start to change the way we think about ourselves and whether we have a place in church leadership or just in leadership in the kingdom in general, okay? I want to encourage you this morning not to disqualify yourself on power or production or self, okay? We're very easily tempted to say, well, I don't have as much to bring to the table as blank. So I shouldn't be in leadership somewhere. I don't feel like I'm able to do as much as blank. So I just can't do it at all. I, I just, you know what, the, the things that I've walked through, I'm just not worthy of leadership. Most of those, those reasons we give guys tend to come back to this power production self thing. That's not of God. Now, God is not necessarily going to tell every single person at every single moment to go jump into church leadership, okay? But do not disqualify yourself on something that God is not holding you to. And the second piece of that puzzle, I mean, this is, this is what Paul is getting at when he says in Galatians 3, 26, 29, there's a verse in there you're probably familiar with. But he says, so in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ... Have clothed yourself with Christ. So there's neither no Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. He says, if you are all one in Christ Jesus, if you belong to Christ, then you are of Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The, the, the narrative, guys, of power, production, self, it changes the way that we see ourselves. It causes us to discount us where God is not holding things against us. Okay? So do not disqualify yourself. Don't sell yourself short if you're in Christ. The flip side of that, though, what we're pursuing through this life of discipleship is spiritual maturity. Okay? Now, if, we, if you dive into the qualifications for the leaders, yeah, spiritual maturity is a big one. You would want to, to find leaders who are mature in God's heart and God's word. But the great thing about maturity is it's not exclusive. That it's not only some people are able to actually grow and mature in the faith. Or that some of you guys might be able to do it and others just can't. Because if we're talking about heart change, if you have a heart this morning, which I'm seeing most people in here do, you would be capable of heart change. 
right? You are capable of maturing. You're capable of growing. In fact, Paul said last week, so Christ gave himself, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That, that was not an exclusive calling, church, for just people who have been in church for 30 years, or people who have only been in church for like 30 days, okay? There's not a qualification or restrictions around maturity. So this is truly why we talk about why this should be part of Part of the leadership DNA at our church is because we would want anybody off the street to get to come in here, to come to know who Christ is, to be able to learn and grow and serve in the church, but to mature to the point of leading others to do as well. This is in part why we have our community groups, right? You can only do so much in this room in 40 minutes on Sunday morning. So we have to have these these groups where we, we work to build this. And I'm excited. I mean, I said this last week, but I've been seeing informal relationships start to kind of build out of those groups for even deeper growth and deeper discussions. Praise God, may that keep going, okay? So as we're talking about church leadership and we're talking about what does the spiritual leader, what would an elder look like, this is, this is a deeply personal calling as well, church. So as we pray this today, this is a... Uh, and I, I've mentioned this, I think, in the past, but the prayers that I end the service with are from a book called The Valley of Vision. It's just a collection of prayers throughout church history. This is one that the title is called A Minister's Prayer. So most, you know, I was tempted to skip over it because you're like, oh, that's for minister. That's just for me. This is for all of us this morning, church. So may this be, be our heart together as we close. Oh, my Lord. Let not my ministry be approved only by men or merely win the esteem and affections of people, but do the work of grace in their hearts. Call in thy elect, seal and edify the regenerate ones, and command eternal blessings on their souls. Save me from both self-opinion and self-seeking. Water the hearts of those who hear thy word, that seed sown in weakness may be raised in power. Cause me and those that hear me to behold thee here in the light of special faith and hereafter in the blaze of endless glory. Make my every sermon, my every interaction a means of grace to myself and help me to experience the power of thy dying love. For thy blood is balm, thy presence bliss, thy smile heaven. Thy cross, the place where truth and mercy meet. Look upon the doubts and discouragements of my ministry and keep me from self-importance. I beg pardon for my many sins, my omissions, my infirmities as a human and as a minister. Command thy blessing on my weak, unworthy labors and on the message of salvation given. Stay with thy people and may thy presence be their portion and mine. When I preach to others, let not my words be merely elegant and masterly, my reasoning polished and refined, my performance powerless and tasteless. But may I exalt thee and may I humble sinners. O Lord of power and grace, all hearts are in thy hands, all events at thy disposal. 
set the seal of thy almighty will upon our ministry together.